welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Ruby Under a Microscope by Pat Shaughnessy. And today we're finishing off chapter four and then doing the first few sections of chapter five. So this means we'll be discussing how Ruby implements keyword arguments and also the internals of our Ruby objects. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find the reading this week? I, I liked it. I think because it's interesting because it was the end of one chapter and the beginning yeah, of another. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you know, summarizing things that you'd learned. I mean, the experiment was good because it was nice and focused and it was very interesting to see how that keyword um, hash is mm-hmm. implemented. And then we had a summary of like, hey, look at all the stuff you've learned. So that was that's always good. Um, and then, you know, beginning of chapter five, it's very like overview, high level. Um, and it, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the chapter based on what we've read so far. So, yeah, I liked it. You? You know, I think I, I, I liked it too. And I think this is um, maybe the third or fourth episode where we've finished off one chapter and are about to start another kind of in the same reading. And I really like that, to be honest. Like, I don't know, it, it feels like a little treat. It's like now that you've, you know wrapped up this nice long big chapter here's a treat we're going to start something totally fresh and have like a almost like a reset button so I really liked it yeah we definitely did that with them we did that with the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four as well um and I I yes because of what I said you some you close off things and then you start something new I really Mm -hmm. like the feeling you're left with yeah 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 same and then when you're done with this week's reading you're thinking like oh I can't wait for next week we're gonna really yeah so yeah it's a great feeling that's how I feel Mm -hmm, for sure so shall we begin Let's do it. So we're going to start with experiment 4-2, which is exploring how Ruby implements keyword arguments, which I think is very, very interesting. So if we look at listing 4-8 and see our example, we have a method that we wrote called def add 2 And this def add 2 takes two arguments that have labels. So it has a colon 2 comma b colon three and then in the actual method we have a plus b so this is something well i I think most readers by now are pretty familiar with this but this happened as of 2.0 when you can specify uh labels for these method arguments so we call our method and we say puts add underscore two parentheses a colon one comma b colon one so instead of using the default values of two and three we're passing in our own values of one and one and we get the return value of two which i think is pretty normal and expected so pat says that earlier in chapter two which honestly feels like so long ago uh Mm -hmm. earlier in chapter two he talks about how he mentioned that ruby uses a hash to implement keyword arguments and i first of all i don't know whether you remember i I was gonna say i don't remember this at all i was like okay sure no i'll I'll say something to jog your memory then because what happened was there was a bit of the book where he goes "Ooh, look at the local table see that random question mark and the fact that in the yarv instructions it calls key this must mean it's a secret hash yes yes like, and he was like, you probably guessed it. And we were like, no. <laughs> I do. <laughs> it's funny because as you explained that to me, I relived all of the feelings that I had. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Why? What? No. <laughs> like, that's exactly yeah. how I felt. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. I totally remember that. Okay, so we are back there uh, and we're going to look at this idea of a secret hash and we're going to prove that that is indeed what's happening. 
So if we look at listing 4-9, we do something that is seemingly random was kind of my, my initial reaction. I was like, why are we doing this? So we open up the class hash and we have def key question mark parentheses val. So that's an existing method that already exists in hash. And we're replacing it with our own method by redefining it. And in that method, we have puts and then the string looking for a key interpolated val. And then we have false and then the method and the class both end. And then underneath that, we have our def add to method that we had before. So it reads def add underscore two. And then for the arguments, we have a colon two, b colon three. We add them up. So we have a plus b and then the method ends. And then finally, we call that add to method. So we have puts add two and then we pass in a colon one, b colon one. So here we are overriding that key question mark method from the hash class. And when we run this uh when we run that code, we get the following. We get looking for key A, looking for key B, and then we get the return value five. So getting that return value five might be weird because when we actually called that add to method, we gave it our own uh, arguments. We passed in one and one. So we should have gotten two, but instead we got five. So this begs the question, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Which was definitely my reaction to this. Yeah, and then the other thing is because we get looking for key A and looking for key B, that proves that um, when we use keyword arguments, Ruby accesses the yes. hash class and then also the key method in the hash class. Yes, and when I was reading this at first, I thought, oh, cool, and because I just focused on that part entirely and I totally missed the part with the number five and it wasn't until mm. Pat was like, this is weird. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is great. We've proved it. And and, <laughs> and then I looked at it yes. again. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That is weird. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have a couple questions, a couple follow-up questions, which are why did Ruby create a hash, which I think we've always been wondering, like, what is a secret hash about? Um, and then we also have why did Ruby ignore the parameter values that I put in and instead just kept the default values? So for that, we have to look at the YARV instructions. Yay, our favorite thing. <laughs> this is, so it's funny because when I first saw the example and b before, before you know, I turned the page and saw the whole like class hash def key question mark thing, I said to myself, I guess we're going to look at your instructions. And then I saw that we weren't and I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to understand this code because it's just regular. Ruby. Yeah. And then <laughs> Same. <laughs> And well, what's funny, yeah. yeah, when he said, oh, now we're going to look at your instructions, I thought, oh, I hope I still understand it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know what? This is good because we're we're getting exposed to this thing we're not totally comfortable with. So hopefully if we just see it over and over and over again, it'll it'll be, you know, just another another language, another set of uh, instructions. So if we look at listing 4-10, that shows us the YARV instructions for the code that um, we talked about on listing 4-9. So here we have code equals angle bracket, angle bracket, end, def add to, passing in the arguments a colon 2, comma b colon 3, and then we have a plus b end, and then we call add to, passing in the arguments a colon 1, b colon 1, and then we end, and then we have puts ruby vm colon colon instruction sequence dot compile passing in code dot disassum if I'm saying that right which is d-i-s-a-s-m so if we look at figure 4-16 we can see the actual output generated and we have put self put self put special object one 
put object and then in straight brackets we have colon a comma one comma colon b comma one and then we have opt send simple and then we have that nice uh, long thing that reads call info bang mid colon core hashtag hash from array comma arg c colon one and then we have another opt send simple which reads call info bang mid colon add two comma arg c colon one and then we have our final opt send simple which reads call info bang mid colon puts comma arg c one and so here we can see that ruby first pushes an array onto the stack and that's where that um that straight bracket colon a comma one colon b comma one comes in and then it calls an internal c function hash from array which that didn't sound familiar to me have we seen that before no and we haven't also seen the notation of core um hash hashtag as you said um but i guess that's basically how if you it's similar to when you have a ruby class and then you call a class method you'd have mm -hmm. like hash and then the hashtag sign and then key, it's the, it's the same pattern, isn't it? So I'm guessing the C methods always start with core and mm. then the name of the method. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. And then at the very end of that Yarv instruction output, we have, we see that Ruby calls the add to method and adds those two numbers and then puts that method to display the result. So this wasn't too bad. Right? It mm -hmm. was like, it was, it was so pretty far, so good. So good. Yeah, not too bad. So finally, we're going to look at figure 4-17. And here we see Yarv instructions, but also we see this local table, which I feel like it's been a while since we've seen a local table. And we are specifically zooming in on that def add underscore two method with the arguments a colon two, b colon three. And so in that local table, we have three rows. We have two, which has the value question mark, three, which has the value B, and four, which has the value A. So the B and the A, I think, are pretty obvious. Those are the, the names of the um, arguments we're passing in. But that question mark, that's the thing that we're trying to figure out. Like, what is this? What is it doing? And does it have anything to do with this secret hash thing, which I'm going to safely assume it does. Why would you do that? I'm just conclusions? so smart. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just really excited <laughs> and smart. That's all. Fair. So, because you are indeed very smart, Saron, the mystery value is indeed the hash, as Pat tells us. And um, so, Pat says that to implement keyword arguments, Ruby creates this hidden argument, which is the hash. And so, what the Yarv instructions are doing is um, it's it's got one line that says get local two comma zero. So two, as you, you said, is the question mark, which is the hash. And then it's got the instruction which says dupe. And so that places the hash onto the stack as a receiver to an upcoming method. And then next we have um, put object colon A. So that puts the symbol colon A onto the stack as a method parameter. And then we have the opt send simple with the call info mid that uh, has the key question mark method and so we call key on the receiver which is the hash um and so and this is what i really liked so remember earlier we were joking about how oh when we thought of the yav instructions we were like are we going to understand it and and pat does something in this section which i really like um where he gives us the equivalent ruby code for what the yav instructions are doing and I was like, this is amazing. And so those four lines that I've just sort of explained, he says, well, what the other instructions are doing is equivalent to doing hidden underscore hash dot key question mark symbol A as the argument. 
So basically you're asking that hidden hash, have you got the um, A symbol set? And then um, following on with the rest of the YAV instructions, uh, if the hash does contain the key, so if it does contain um, symbol A, then we, we, use, we use the delete method on the hash, which with hashes that removes the key from the hash and then returns the corresponding value. And then we do set local four comma zero. And so what this does is, because we know four relates to the A argument, it sets that value that we've put onto the stack into the A argument. And um, there's also some branching log logic in these YAV instructions. So if the hash didn't contain the key A, then we would have gone to the YAV instructions, which says put object um, two, which is the hash, and then set local four um, comma zero. So that would save the default value two um, into the argument. And then we have example 4-11, which completes the, the Ruby code equivalent to the YAV instructions. And that says, if hidden underscore hash dot key with the argument symbol A, um, then A equals hidden underscore hash dot delete A. So basically, if the hidden hash has the symbol A, then set the variable A to be um, whatever uh, you've passed in. Else A equals two, where two is that default value, which we had in our definition uh, for the method. So um, we can see that Ruby stores the keyword arguments in, in this hidden hash. And when the when we first start a method, it, it loads each argument's value from the hash. And if it isn't there, then it uses the default value. So it's very simple. Um, but yeah, I really like this explanation. Um, and now we can understand why um, when we had overridden the um, key argument and we returned false, why it didn't take into account the um, the arguments we passed in, that's because when we return false, then um, as shown in the conditional in example 4-11, then Ruby will always ignore the value of each argument that's passed. So it doesn't do the hidden hash.delete thing. And instead it will just use the default value. And so that's why we ended up seeing five as opposed to two. Mm -hmm. And then there's one last note which says that whenever you call any method and use keyword arguments, YAV checks to see whether the keyword arguments you provide are expected by the target method and Ruby raises an exception if there is an unexpected argument. And so we see in example 412 um, a case for if you try to pass in C um, with uh, into the add to method, then you would get an unknown keyword C. So you get an argument error. Um, and the other thing that I thought was worth noting, which is why you might want to use keyword arguments, is likewise, if you miss out a keyword argument, um, then you get a missing keyword argument error. So for example, if you try to do add to with just A, then you'd get like a missing keyword B. So that's another mm -hmm. reason why sometimes, um, depending on what you're doing, you would choose to have keyword arguments because it can help with debugging as well. Very cool. So that is the end of chapter four. And in this chapter, we covered a lot of stuff. It is one of those things, I think I had this same reaction with the last chapter where it wasn't until we reviewed everything in summary that I was like, oh my goodness. So here we look back and we talk about how we started off by looking at how YARV controls the execution flow. And I vividly remember the whole branch unless mm -hmm. and, you know, that whole conversation looking at conditionals yeah, and loops and all that. 
Uh, we also talk about how Ruby categorizes methods into 11 types, and it creates the standard ISEQ method for ones that we write, so that's probably the one that we care about the most. Uh, we talk about, recently, just now, how Ruby implements keyword arguments <laughs> and uh, the use of that secret hash, which is really interesting. So, yeah, we covered a lot of stuff in, in this chapter. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And three next, is still way more crazy, but yeah. Yes, yeah. Chapter four felt very, very doable, especially looking back at the list. I was like, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not angry at any of these things, <laughs> which is a good sign. <laughs> and I remember them. <laughs> and I remember them exactly, exactly. So now we get to move on to chapter five, which I was really excited about. It is called Objects and Classes, and this is uh, really cool because you know it says near the beginning basically on the first at the bottom of the first page it talks about how we're going to talk about what ruby objects actually are what information they have we're going to look at ruby objects through a microscope which is great because that's what the book's called and uh, <laughs> uh and we're gonna do the same thing for classes as well and this is really awesome and i was really excited about this because I feel like the whole everything in ruby is an object has just been ingrained in me and yes. i've never really thought thought much about what that means or what that looks like or any of that. I've just kind of been like, okay, cool. Everything Ruby's an object and just gone with it. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be fun to kind of say, wait a minute, what does that mean actually? Yeah, I'm, I feel the same. So what are Ruby objects? Shall we go inside a Ruby object? Yeah, let's do it. So before we uh, dig into that, actually, there's one thing that I want to point out where Pat says um, he makes this statement before the roadmap, which says... By looking at how Ruby implements objects and classes, you'll learn how to use them and how to write object-oriented programs using Ruby. And he said things with similar themes uh, earlier on in the book. And it's one of those things where I wonder whether like, by the end of this chapter, when we go and create more Ruby objects or things like that, knowing what they actually mean and what they look like inside will help us. I'm, I'm still curious as to how that translates. Mm -hmm. Like I find it very interesting, but I'm still curious as to how I'm waiting for the moment when I'm writing Ruby and I go, ooh, because I know it does this, that's going to make me yeah. design it this way or, yeah. or that sort of thing. Okay, so inside a Ruby object. So the first thing we learn is that Ruby saves each of our custom objects in a C structure called R object. So the name makes sense. Um, and in uh, figure 5-1, um, we see what a Ruby object in Ruby 1.9 and Ruby 2.0 looks like. And did you do you have this image of pepper of peppers in your book? Of what? Do you have um a picture of bell peppers? Oh, peppers, yes. In half. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay, it's so funny because I didn't know what they were until you just said that. It really yeah. so it took me a Oh, because I was about to say, oh, how embarrassing. It took me like two seconds to work out what they were when I was reading nope. earlier, but you still didn't know. <laughs> no, I was like, what? So you what know, did you I, think they were? <laughs> I, I said, I, I think I think Pat's trying to be funny. I'm just going to ignore this and stick with the code stuff. So I just, I looked at it and my brain was like, we don't recognize this object. And then I just moved on. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder where it comes from. Well, what, what the thinking was behind a pepper of all. Yeah. Maybe because a pepper has an interesting internal structure. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. Because on the outside, it's like, you it's know, it looks like. It's not what you'd expect. Yeah. yeah. 
Now that you say that, and I'm thinking about other fruits and vegetables, peppers are weird because they're <laughs> they're totally hollow on the inside. You know, like a tomato, onion, anything yeah. else, it, it looks solid on the outside, and then it is. But peppers, there's there's really nothing inside. Oh God, is there nothing inside ruby objects? <laughs> is that is that the lesson? Maybe we'll find out that this whole time it's all just a dream. It's just it's just one big lie. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So at a high level, um, we have these things called R objects, and um. And there's a pointer into this R object, which is a reference to your object. And then inside your R object structure, there's something called an R basic structure. And the R basic structure uh, contains inf- two sorts of information. It contains a set of Boolean values, which is labeled flags. And this it says that it stores a variety of internal technical values. So perhaps we'll find out later what that means. Um, and there's also a class pointer called class, spelled with a K. And this indicates or this points to um, which class your object is an instance of. And then outside of that R basic structure, but still within the R object structure, um, you've got an array of instance uh, variables. um, And there's num IV, which holds the instance variable count. And there's also IV PTR, so instance variable pointer. um, And that's a pointer to an array of values. And then Pat summarizes, you know, in one sentence, what this R object structure is telling us, which is that every Ruby object is the combination of a class pointer and an array of instance variables. So at this point, what were you thinking, Saron? I was thinking, okay, this is manageable. This is doable. There isn't anything that's like, mm-hmm. whoa, wait a minute. So I felt, I felt good. I felt I was cautiously optimistic. Cool. Okay, so do you want to tell us more about inspecting class and IVPTR? Yes, I do. Great. So to look into this more, we're going to start by creating a really simple Ruby class called Class Mathematician. And we have two adder accessors, one for first name and one for last name. And this is enlisting 5-1. And so what we know about this is we need to save the class pointer in our object because every object needs to track the class that was used to create it so we know you know where it came from. And we also uh, want to have a pointer to the class inside our object as well for every instance of that class. So if we look at 5-2, creating an object instance, we're in IRB and we create a um, an instance called Euler and Euler is equal to mathematician.new. And when we look at the return value, we see something that I feel like I've seen, you know, a ton of times, which is we have the, is it not called a hashtag? Um, it's called, uh, ugh, why am I forgetting? Don't what say it's pound. Called? They always say it on, yes, pound sign. That was it. No, I'm calling it a hashtag. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you guys say that. Okay. So we get hashtag. And we have angle brackets, and inside the angle brackets, we have mathematician colon, and then a very, very long string of numbers and letters. Hex, uh, hex string. Yes, a hex string. So Pat tells us that the fact that we see the name, the class name, mathematician, is Ruby showing us the, what the class pointer is for that object. And the fact that we see that hex string is showing us the value pointer for that object. So this entire time, whenever I've seen, you know, that type of return value where it's the name of the class and then some, you know, hex string value, I I always called it like the ID 
of the object. Mm. And now, mm -hmm. you know, I, I kind of, I got the sense of, oh, it's this unique thing that comes with every instance. Um, and now I have the actual name of it, which is the value pointer for the object. Mm-hmm. So next, in listing 5-3, we look at what that object looks like when we actually give it some uh, instance variables. So we give Euler a first name. We say Euler.firstName equals Leonard. And we see that, you know, we get a return string Leonard. And then we give it a last name. So Euler.lastName equals Euler. And then we get the string back Euler. And then if we look at the object Euler again, this time it looks a little bit different. So we still have our hashtag mathematician with our hex string. <laughs> but next to that, we also have at first name equals Leonard, comma, at last name equals Euler. And so here we see that Ruby is showing us the instance variable array for that specific instance. So, okay, so this is the part that I thought was, you know, am I missing something? Because Pat explains that um, different sets of objects can have different values for their array, even if it's the same instance variables. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Like, is that just kind of like making sure we're all on the same page? Or is that like a surprise? This is something that's interesting about Ruby. Are you saying it sounds pretty obvious? Yeah. Which is that, yeah. of course, you could have different first names and different last names. Right. Like, is that, am, am I missing something? Yeah. yeah, that's what I read. I think he's just trying to, I think he's just trying to make the point of, this is why this array is stored on the object as opposed to anywhere else. Well, where else would it be stored, though? Well, maybe it could be stored in some external place, but then it could get confused. Because remember, you could have two mathematician instances which have the same first name and last name could get confusing mm -hmm. if you're trying to access it elsewhere, maybe. I guess I the know. way I read it, it, it made me wonder. Me. Right, exactly. Like, it seemed obvious to me. And when I read it, it made me wonder, was there a similar example that I forgot about where it's not stored this way? And so we're calling it out to make a distinction. So I wasn't sure if I, I wasn't sure if there was more to it than just kind of explaining how instance variables work. You know how sometimes it goes both ways. So you know how sometimes you read something and you're wishing, ah, you didn't really explain X or yeah. Y to me, so yeah. I'm a bit confused. <laughs> this is the other side where we, this seems very obvious. This particular piece of information seems very obvious to us. And so we're like, why are you telling us this? But yeah. for some people it might not be obvious. And, and so it's just hard to get into that frame of mind. Yeah, it's really interesting because the fact that it's obvious made me go like, uh oh, I've clearly missed something. <laughs> like There must be something else here. But yeah. But then again, this book isn't written for Ruby beginners. So you'd expect yeah, that's that people true. would. That's yeah, true. but yeah. We'll just go with the obvious. That makes me feel like I know stuff. So it's 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 obvious and we're very yeah. smart. There we go. So this week the reading for me was an eight. I thought it was I thought it was really good, really easy to understand. I followed everything and it made me feel really smart, which is always very important to me. So what about you? What was your score? So I was going to give it an eight, um, but then I was thinking that I gave last week's an eight and That's true. this felt better for me in terms of it was all very interesting and I understood it mm -hmm. all. So I kind of feel I want to say a nine, but then again, Ooh. I didn't find it as exciting as mm -hmm. last week where last week I mm -hmm. felt like a lot of dots fell into place. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm going to stick with an eight. Okay. That's fair. That makes sense to me. So we want to know, what did you think of the reading this week? Tweet us your score at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio!